So this is part three of a three-part series of bonus content meant to update season six, Where is Rick Atwood? If you have not listened to parts one and two of the bonus content, I suggest you go back and do that before listening to this episode. The last scheduled day of testimony began with Detective Sergeant Scott Rios back up on the stand. Now he put a lot of work into this case along with Detective Sergeant Dick Miller. When he was back up on the stand, he was first asked questions about how Rick Atwood had been legally declared deceased. This is important because Rick Atwood's body has never been found. It's one of the things that the prosecutor needs when trying a murder case. Detective Sergeant Rios was asked the ways in which this was done, including researching Rick's credit history through the Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion databases. The Secretary of State database was also searched, with no hits coming back on Rick. It was also noted that Rick had child support obligations that he had been paying regularly, and the last payment received was on August 2nd, 1983, just days before he went missing. The Department of State database where passport information is held was also searched, with no hits regarding Rick Atwood. And then a Michigan State Police intelligence check was also done for any public records related to Rick Atwood. The culmination of negative results on all of these searches ended with a legal order establishing the death of Rick Atwood so that the death certificate could be certified. One of the last things that the prosecution established had to do with a witness that would take the stand later in the day. His name was Nolan Gant. And also it was to set up some testimony by Dr. Stephen Cole, the medical examiner regarding biological evidence that he would reference in his testimony. That during your investigation, you learned that a statement was made by a Nolan Gant. Is that correct? That is correct, sir. In 1985? Correct, sir. Were you able to determine from Kent County jail records whether the defendant and Nolan Gant uh, stayed in the uh, Nuevo, sorry, Kent County jail together during a time period? We were, sir. Okay, and what was that time period? That was uh, February, March, uh, 1985. And Your Honor, uh, Mr. Gunderson has one or two quick questions for Detective Rios regarding the next witness. Thank you. You may go ahead, sir. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Detective Rios, you heard Detective Miller's testimony, correct? I did, sir. And you've reviewed his reports and property receipts? I have. Are you familiar with what he listed as item number 25? I am, sir. There would have been liver and lung um, tissues, cells uh, recovered from the trunk of the car. And do you know what happened to that item? They were placed on slides and entered into evidence. Um, subsequently, uh, when uh, we transitioned to an online um, report writing system, all item numbers that were listed on the paper system were transferred to an online system and the numbers were changed. What was item 25 changed to? 13. Thank you. I have no more questions, Your Honor. We have no further questions for this witness, Your Honor. Thank you. Mr. Price. Thank you, Your Honor. Detective Rios, uh, what you've testified today uh, is basically a normal or, uh, I guess, uh, procedure that's followed 
by the department to, as you have here, uh, establish a legal uh, premise of death. Is that fair to say? Correct, sir. And uh, you've been a detective for how long? Since 2003. Is that a question or an issue? <laughs> that's, that's why I became a detective. Okay. And have you uh, been involved in these type of uh, investigations before, specifically uh, trying to establish uh, a death without uh, a corpus? I have, sir. How many times? Uh, one other time where we have a missing person we haven't been able to locate. And uh, was that person then ever located, uh, although there was a legal establishment of death? They were not. Are you aware of any occasions where this procedure has been followed and then all of a sudden, 10, 12, however many years later, somebody shows up alive? I'm not aware of any myself, sir. Are you aware of any uh, proceedings where someone just disappears for a period of time, even years, and then comes back and uh, there they are? And uh, everybody thinks, gee, you think they're dead, but they never these procedures, but all of a sudden they show up. I have I have never dealt with that personally uh, as an investigator. I, I have uh, read stuff. Uh, how about Whitey Bulger? Have you ever heard of Whitey Whitey Bulger? I have not. Famous Boston uh, gangster back in the 60s, 70s. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, sir. No. Everybody looking for him and disappeared, and they caught him about I don't know 30 years later. Not familiar with it. I am not, sir. All right. Thanks. So, Whitey Bulger, I didn't see that one coming, did you? I should note that about 20 minutes into Detective Sergeant Rios' questioning by the prosecution, Roy Snell Jr. was whispering questions to his lawyer. Now, he couldn't hear the questions, but there did appear to be a bit of intensity to them. He repeatedly put up a hand and appeared to say, We'll get to that, seemingly trying to placate his client. Next up was Katie Meredith. She's a forensic biologist from the Michigan State Police Crime Lab. She was there to establish that they had a sample from Rick with which to compare against, taken from a blood sample on the label on a water bottle in his Trans Am when it was found. Now, no offense to Ms. Meredith, but that testimony was long and tedious and it was done by Zoom, so I am going to summarize it quickly for you in layman's terms. The big takeaway from her very technical testimony is that Roy Snell's DNA was found all over six or seven cigarette butts in Rick's car. During this testimony, Snell kept trying to get his lawyer's attention again by shaking a piece of paper at him and loudly clearing his throat, even while he was actively questioning the witness on cross. When his lawyer conferred with him during the time that the judge asked her questions, Snell's lawyer went back up to the podium, and then the question that Snell wanted to be asked became clear. His lawyer asked the forensic biologist if she could tell when those cigarette butts were put where they were found. Obviously, the witness said no. She can test the DNA, but she would have no way of knowing when somebody smoked that cigarette and left the butt there. And when she said as much, Roy Snell bobbed his head up and down and gave a thumbs-up sign, indicating the point he was trying to get across is that the state would never be able to prove when those cigarette butts were deposited in Rick's car. I would like to note, though, that a witness on the day in question who testified during these proceedings, put Snell in Rick's car on the day in question, saying, let's rob Ricky. So, yeah, good luck with that at trial. 
My suspicion is that the defense is going to toss that witness under the bus, which should be interesting, to say the least. Now, next up is Dr. Cole, and he's a forensic pathologist. I'd like to just add that Dr. Cole is a bit of a superstar as far as I'm concerned. He's done the autopsies on a number of my cases, including season two involving the murder of Jeanette Robertson. That 14-page autopsy report documents some of the most harrowing injuries that I have ever had the displeasure of reading. I've also read his court testimony in multiple cases, including in the deaths of Richard and Alita Thompson in my season three coverage of the murders and rapes associated with Peter Piper. Dr. Cole has co-written a few books, including Cause of Death, Forensic Files of a Medical Examiner, and also Skeletons in the Closet, Stories from the County Morgue. They were both co-written with a man named Tobin Buck, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right because it's spelled B-U-H-K. At the beginning of Dr. Cole's interview, they discussed the preparation of slides and images that he took of those slides that he would be questioned about. He was also interviewed over Zoom, and because I had had problems with the echo on that, I decided to try to combat the feedback or echo I was getting in the previous day's testimony by recording another way. So the audio on today's episode will sound different, I think, but it'll also be clearer. Dr. Cole's testimony is very important because of the biological material found in Rick Atwood's trunk. It wasn't just blood, but I'll let Dr. Cole explain. Cole, C-O-H-L-E. Thank you. And where are you employed? Uh, Well, I work out of Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids. My immediate employer is Michigan Pathology Specialists. And what is your job there? Uh, I practice forensic pathology. And Your Honor, I spoke uh, again with counsel a few weeks ago, and I believe he agreed to stipulate for the purposes of uh, exam that Dr. Cole is qualified to testify as an expert in forensic pathology. Again, Your Honor, being familiar with Dr. Cole's credentials and also having uh, him uh, testify in other proceedings and cases I've had uh, with him as a witness, I would stipulate to him as an expert witness here on Thank you. Court would uh, qualify Mr. or Dr. Cole as an expert in forensic pathology per agreement of the parties. Thank you, Your Honor. Doctor, on, on or about December 14th of 2018, you reviewed what's called item number 13, some slides you received from the Michigan State Police. Is that correct? Yes. And before we get into what those slides are, can you ex- briefly explain what a slide is? Well, a slide is a rectangular piece of glass, uh, and in the pathology sense, a slide has a very thin slice of tissue which has been stained, uh, and uh, it's prepared in that way so that a pathologist can examine the tissue under the microscope. And how is a slide prepared? Well, the first thing that happens, of course, a slide is made out of tissue. So the tissue is first preserved in formaldehyde. It is then prepared uh, through a series of steps that, in which the tissue is passed through uh, alcohol, formaldehyde. It's, it is then embedded in paraffin, which gives it some substance. Uh, the, it's, it's called a paraffin block. So it's kind of a... Uh, rectangular 
piece of paraffin containing the tissue in it. It's usually three to four millimeters thick. It is put on a special knife called a microtome, and extremely thin, translucent pieces of that tissue are cut uh, on the microtome. They are then put on a slide, and then they are stained, uh, and then the pathologist can examine them microscopically. The stain makes it more visible to you? It does. Okay. And how do you use, what do you use a slide for in forensic pathology? Well, generally, what uh, we use them for is simply to, uh, as part of our autopsy. Uh, so we do an autopsy on a deceased person. We examine the organs with the naked eye uh, and uh, look for disease, look for injury. And then uh, small pieces of the various tissues are taken at the time of the autopsy, and they are subsequently made into slides. Uh, and the reason we do that is to look well for various things, but including natural disease. Sometimes there's injury that can be made more apparent or can be seen more apparent on the slides. Sometimes if people uh, use uh, intravenous drugs, we will find little crystals of material that they injected, uh, and those will get trapped in the lungs so we can uh, determine if they are a chronic intravenous drug user. Now, did you see those slides again uh, that we previously referenced on May 5th, 2020? Yes. And at that time, did you take pictures of those slides? Yes, I did. Your Honor, for the exhibits, uh, if the uh, counsel identifies those exhibits, I would have no objection their admission. I've been provided copies previously, reviewed them prior to this uh, proceeding and not object uh, for purposes of preliminary examination. All right. Counsel, the numbers of those exhibits? Uh, Your Honor, we'd be moving to admit 33 through 38. Court would admit Prosecutors propose exhibits 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, and 38 per agreement of the parties. Thank you, Your Honor. Doctor, you have uh, pictures marked as I have marked them, or the court has marked them in front of you, correct? Um, well, they're on this computer. I'd have to get out of uh, the district. Uh, I'd have to get out of the uh, Zoom meeting, but I, I remember them. I just reviewed them prior to my testimony today. Okay, please do not exit Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, let's see. I don't know if I step closer to the camera, if you can see what I'm holding up. What I have marked, what the court has marked is 33. Yes, I can see that. Okay, and you recognize this picture? I do. This is a picture that you took? It is. And what does that picture depict? Well, it depicts numerous shed skin cells. Uh, they appear on the picture as uh, more or less circular red structures that are not uh, they're, they're separate from one another. They're not cohesive. Would you make any clinical finding based just on these skin cells? No. Okay. I've moved to publish this to the court. 
Now I'm going to come to the camera with what we have is 34. Yes. It's that I black. can see that. Yeah, there you go. Oh, there you go. There you go. All right. And you recognize this is your picture as well? Yes. And what does that picture depict? That picture depicts uh, some tissue, but along with it is a blood vessel. There's clearly a blood vessel in there containing red blood cells. Okay. And did you make any clinical findings based on this item? Well, uh, it's not normal for a blood vessel to uh, be outside the body. So the way that would happen is if there was trauma to the body with uh, destruction of tissue and uh, leakage of small pieces of tissue, which in this case uh, included a blood vessel. So not just blood, but an actual blood vessel like a vein or an artery? That's right. Probably a capillary, actually. Okay, thank you. The point that the prosecution wants to get across is that the blood sample in question, taken from the trunk, also had a blood vessel in it. And Dr. Cole is basically saying that that's not going to happen unless there's trauma to the body that allows this biological substance to drain out of the body along with the blood. So, for example, you and I, bits of our blood vessels don't just come out of our body when we prick our finger or get a paper cut. Something had to happen to disrupt that vessel in order for a piece of it to separate in the first place, like a gunshot. And exhibit number 35? Yes, I, I, I can see that. Okay, and what does that depict? That's another piece of tissue which is generally nondescript. It's connective tissue, but there is a blood vessel identified within it. The blood vessel is lined by some very elongated thin cells called endothelial cells, and you can see the nuclei on them. They stain purple. And would your... Uh would your clinical findings on number 35 be similar to what you made in 34? Yes. Okay. And publish your Yes, thank you. And doctor, if I may, I'd like to address the next three pictures together because uh, these three pictures, do you recognize these? 36, yes, I do. 37? And do these all depict uh, the same tissue? They do. All right. And what kind of tissue is that? That's liver. And how do you know that that is liver? Well, the liver cells are characteristic. They tend to have a red cytoplasm with a central round uh, purple nucleus. Uh, they are, are in clumps, that is, they are adherent to one another, and uh, uh, I, I'd say that's the best general uh, discussion I can give. One of them has actually an architectural feature of liver besides, with, which is a small space, um, uh, which is a small, basically a blood vessel into which blood drains as, as it passes through the liver. And if I approach the camera again, can you direct me to where that space is that you're talking about? I think it'll be very challenging, but uh, it looks like there is such a space just to the left 
left side of that image, it's a small white space. And it's circular. Right here, where my finger uh, is? No, it's more on the other side. Uh, it's on my left. It'd be on your right. Oh, okay. Right there? Yes, yes. All right, thank you. If I may publish these three to the court as well. Thank you, sir. Now, Dr. To your, uh, from your understanding, where were these liver cells found? Uh, from the trunk of a car. Now, based on your experience and training, what conclusions can you make about how liver tissue like this would come to be found in the trunk of a car? Well, there would have to be trauma. Uh, just a minute, mister. Just a minute, doctor. Go ahead. It calls highly for speculation. I absolutely have no personal knowledge how those liver cells may have come to be in those in that car, which we're talking period of 1983. I'll rephrase the question. Thank you, Counselor. From a medical perspective, not these specific liver cells, but liver tissue in the trunk of a car, what kind of injury would cause the expulsion of liver tissue into, say, an environment like that. Objective phrase, injury. I'll lay a foundation. Thank you, sir. For liver tissue to be found in the trunk of a car, would there have to be an injury? Yes. And what kind of injury would have to be sustained for that liver tissue to be found in the trunk of a car? It would be a penetrating injury of the abdomen, which passed all the way through the abdominal wall into the liver and caused damage to the liver such that small uh, pieces of liver tissue would be uh, drained through the penetrating wound. They would be drained onto whatever surface the body is lying, in this case, the trunk of a car. Would you characterize that kind of injury as a serious injury requiring medical attention? Yes. Could that be a lethal injury? It could be, yes. Uh, can you draw any other medical conclusions based on your examination of those uh, liver samples? Uh, no, I, I think they would have to have, have to have arisen there from injury, from a penetrating abdominal injury. and. Uh, I think that's about all I can say. Thank you. I have no more questions at this time, Your Honor. Mr. Parsley? Dr. Cole, good morning. Good morning. Uh, you can hear me and I can hear you. If you can't hear me or understand my questions, let me know and I'll uh, try to ask them a different way or speak louder. Fair enough? Yep. Yes, sir. That's fair. And uh, just so you know, uh, I've seen you before. I don't know if you remember me. Rick Prysock, I'm here on behalf of Mr. Snell. I don't know if you can see him or not, but uh, uh, to ask you some questions so on his behalf, all right? Yes, sir. And the first question I have for you is when the judge asked you, can you hear me, and you said, I can, you sound surprised, were you? <laughs> well, I, I'm not a technocrat. This, this is a new thing for you, right? 
uh, yeah, I've had some other Zoom meetings, but not very many, and I'm not very techy, so I'm glad it worked. So are we. So, Doctor, uh, first thing I want to ask you about is, and I've, I've got a supplemental report here uh, where it talks about uh, a report by Dr. Gracer, which was actually done in October 31st of 1983. Did you have a chance to look at that report? Do you recall what I'm talking about? Well, I... I don't have it with me. I, I remember in general that I was told that Dr. Grazer was involved back then. Um, I may have seen uh, the report. I know that uh, someone else, presumably he had looked at the slides and marked some areas of the slides that I examined. Okay. Uh, if you recall, and if you don't, that's fine. I mean, we can get into this when uh, we're all here in person eventually. Uh, but I'll just read from you, Dr. Gracer uh, indicated, uh, I cannot prove from my studies that this is human tissue. It could be of animal origin. Uh, and so, and you also, I think, indicated that this uh, tissue uh, that you examined uh, was uh, animal, including human. Is that a fair summary? It is. Okay. Now, talking about this uh, liver tissue uh, that you identified for counsel, uh, I think you said there were approximately 60 or 70 cells uh, that you identified as liver tissue. Is that correct? Or liver cells? I, yes, I would say that was probably in each of the areas that I photographed, there were probably 60 to 70 cells. I have a summary here that it says it's suggestive of liver cells. Did you make a definitive identification or was just from your examination that it's suggestive that it could be liver cells? Well, I looked at them several times and ultimately concluded that there was, really, there was really nothing else they could be but liver cells. Absolutely nothing else? There isn't anything that's, that's similar? Well, nothing else looks like that. Okay. And are we talking now uh, human cells? Do those look different than, for example, animal cells, let's say from a deer? No, I think they would look similar. They would look similar? Yes. All right. Now... Uh, also, I think you identified um, a cluster of cells uh, that approximately 20 or 30 cells, that, that's where you said appeared to be of animal origin, including human, but you did not uh, locate uh, or were able to confirm that those cells were of liver or lung origin. They were just uh, human cells or animal cells. Is that fair to say? Well, I, again, since we're not physically looking at the same slides, uh, the, what I photographed uh, for exhibits 36, 37, and 38, I'm confident yeah. were liver. Uh, the, uh, one of the blood vessels, I think it was the first 33, the first uh, image showing blood vessels, there, were, there, were, there was a cluster of cells that might be liver associated with that. I just couldn't say for certain. And uh, it was uh, put 
to you that, that these uh, samples for you were recovered, uh, I believe, from the trunk of a car. Was that your understanding? It was, yes. And you yourself were not involved in the collection of those samples, uh, were not present when those samples were taken. Is that fair to say? That's right. And they were presented to you uh, sometime later uh, at your laboratory where you conducted the examinations? Yes. And uh, you did do those in your uh, laboratory? I did in my office, yes. Or in your office. Do you recall how long ago? Well, um, I, well, I, as, as was mentioned earlier, I, the last time I believe that I looked at them was early in May, about a month ago. Uh, uh -huh. I had looked at them at least one other time uh, with Detective Maki, who had brought them uh, just for me to look at, and, and uh, I think he made notes at that time, and then subsequently it was requested that I take photographs. Uh, let's try the November of 2018. Sound about, about right? Uh, it's certainly, yes, that's probably right, yes. All right. Thank you, Doctor. Appreciate it. Yes. Okay, so clearly the defense is trying to suggest that the biological sample in question could be from a deer rather than a human, because Rick was known to hunt. But as the judge will later point out in her ruling, the blood from which these cells on the slides were extracted did eventually Come back to Rick Atwood. Doctor, I just have a couple questions. Were you able to do uh, any sort of DNA profile or anything? Was that part of your uh, job on these samples that you received? No, it was not. Do you know where these samples were taken from in the trunk? Well, I don't know exactly other than the floor of the trunk. Uh, okay. That's my understanding. All right. Thank you, sir. Anything yes, else? Yes, ma'am. No, Your Honor. That, that you just brought something up. Uh, Dr. Cole, uh, you didn't send those samples out to, to anyone else or take uh, any parts uh, from those samples and made new samples and sent them to anyone, did you? No, I did not. What did you do with them when you were finished? I gave them back to uh, Detective Moss. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor, for appearing by Zoom and for being patient as we figured out uh, all this technology around us today. Stay safe and healthy. Yes, ma'am. You too. Thank you. The last witness was Nolan Gant. He was housed in the Kent County Jail with Roy Snell in 1985. Uh, counsel, why don't you call your next witness? Ready, Your Honor. Uh, Mr. Nolan Gant, please. Mr. Gant, I'm going to have you step right up here to the witness stand. There's a few steps. Watch your step as you come up. Get up there, all right? Thank you, sir. May have a seat. You may move that chair forward or backwards as you see fit. Mr. Gantman, have you raised your right hand for me? Do you solemnly swear, oath, or affirm to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, sir. Sir, you may take off your mask if you find it easier. Um, no, I'm fine. You want to leave it on? All right. Safe and sorry. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> All right. If at any point you change your mind, I know it gets hot in there, and sometimes it's hard to speak clearly, but that's up to you, sir. Yes, Counsel, you may go ahead. Thank you, Judge. Uh, good morning. Can you tell us your name, please? Nolan Gant. Mr. Gant, how old are you today? Um, 58. I want to take you back in time to 1985. Uh, do you remember being uh, in the Kent County Jail as an inmate uh, in February and March of that year? Yes, sir. 
Okay. Uh, during your time there, uh, did you meet somebody uh, you came to know as the name of Roy? Yes, sir. Okay. Do you know that person's last name? No, I don't. Okay. Could you identify that person today? No, I can't. Okay. Actually, before we uh, get any further, Judge, um, uh, I'd like to back out and uh, offer the following. Uh, we spoke with Mr. Prysock this morning, and uh, uh, Mr. Gant has uh, made a request, and we've advised Mr. Prysock of our intention to meet that request. And the request that he's made is uh, Mr. Gant is currently a resident of the Tennessee Department of Corrections. Uh, he requests a letter uh, from, our, from my office uh, uh, indicating uh, his cooperation in this case. We are going to draft uh, such a letter. It has not been done yet, and I'm going to explain that in a moment. Uh, the letter is going to capture three things. Number one, Mr. Gant's cooperation during the course of this investigation going back, in fact, to 1985. Number two, uh, based on our expectation of his truthful testimony, uh, uh, we will detail in this letter uh, that we found his testimony to be truthful uh, because it's been corroborated by other physical evidence in the case. Number three, the letter will also uh, state the final disposition of this litigation, People versus uh, uh, Roy Snell. Uh, those are the three items that will be in the letter. Uh, obviously, logic doesn't allow that letter, letter to be drafted prior to uh, the completion of his testimony, uh, which we expect to go through trial. Uh, but those are the three components that will be in that letter. Uh, this is consideration, and uh, we're under an obligation to disclose it, and we're doing so now. Thank you, sir. Mr. Prysak, you have been made aware of that. I have, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you. You may go ahead, sir. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Gant, uh, I think I just, uh, the last question was, uh, were you uh, an inmate in the uh, Kent County Jail in February and March of uh, 1985? Yes, I was. Okay, and you indicated that you met a person by the name of Roy, you don't know his last name, and you can't identify him today, is that correct? Correct. Can you describe for Judge Dykeman uh, what Roy looked like when you met him in 1985? Uh, he was tall and kind of slim. Okay. Any facial hair? Um, mustache. Okay. Um, uh, in terms of uh, how you met him, can you enlighten us as to how that happened? Um, I was in I was in the cell next to him. Okay. And we talked. Do you remember what cell number you were in? Um, I was in eight, four or five. Okay. Do you remember what cell number Roy was in? Roy was in um, five, I think. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, five or what? Five. I think he said, or I think. Four or five. I was in. I was right next to him. It was four or five. Okay. Uh, while you were in your cell, the door was locked. Were you able to communicate with Roy? Yeah, we can go to the back of the cell. How do you, How were you able to do that? Um, just walk to the back. We had a walkway where officers used to come by and check. Mm -hmm. You know, and we'd be back there talking to each other between the bars. Okay. Uh, in terms of uh, your day-to-day -day activities, were, were you allowed to leave your cell during the course of the day? Yeah, they would give us rent okay. on our side, and the other side, they'd stay in and we'd come out. Uh, was uh, Roy on the same side as you? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so during recreation time, the two of you would be able to uh, see each other and converse? Yeah, we would talk. Okay. Um, during your time in there, I mean, how long do you think you were housed with Roy, approximately, uh, before either one of you left? Um, probably about... 90 days, 
Okay. Probably about 90 days or probably a little bit more. Okay. Uh, and during that time, did you get to know him? Yeah. Okay. And did uh, he get to know you? Yeah, he did. Did you tell him why you were in there? Yeah. Okay. Did he tell you uh, why he was in there? Um, he said it, um, um, he really didn't say why he was in there. I think he was in there for something else, but he told me about his other case. Okay. Uh, this other case that you're referring to, um, uh, did any uh, investigators ever come to uh, uh, meet with uh, 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 Mr. S uh, with Roy, if you know? Yeah. Okay. And uh, in terms of your conversations with Roy, did he explain to you what the investigators were there to see him about? Yeah, he said it was about a murder. Okay. And uh, did he uh, tell you if he was involved in that murder at all? Yeah, he said he killed the guy. Uh, did he tell you uh, the person, uh, you, what uh, uh, what race they were? He was a white guy. Uh, did he tell you where he shot him? So he shot him in when he was sitting in the car. Uh, whose car were they in? His car, the guy's car. Okay, did he tell you the name of the other individual? No, he didn't. Okay, did he tell you what kind of car the other individual uh, owned at the time that he shot him? Yes, the Trans Am. Okay. Uh, did he, where was uh, Roy when he shot the uh, owner of the Trans Am? He was sitting uh, in the passenger seat. Okay. Did he tell you how many times he shot him? So he shot him the first time, and the guy bent down. He said, motherfucker, you shot me. Roy shot him again. Okay. Did he tell you how many times he shot the person in total? Yeah, he said five to six times. Okay. Um, did he say why he shot the man in the Trans Am? Yeah, he said he robbed him. He, what did he rob him of? Um, shit, anywhere from $20,000, $30,000, and his um, marijuana, his weed. Okay, so he took marijuana from him? Yeah. And he took uh, uh, money from him? Yeah. Okay, and this is what Roy told you this while you were in me. the Kent County Jail. Okay. Um, did you, uh, uh, did he tell you if anybody else knew about what he had done? No. Okay. Um, did you ever talk to, uh, did he ever talk about his father? Yeah, he says, um, his father was aware of it. Okay. Uh, did he ever talk about, did Roy ever talk about his girlfriend? No, he, they were staying in a motel together. Okay. Uh, did he say what he did with this, uh, or, you know, what happened after he shot the man and took his money and his marijuana? He put him in the trunk of the car. Okay. Uh, did he say what he did with the uh, body? So he buried the body on, it, on his family's property. Uh, did he tell you whether or not he thought the body might be found? No. No, he didn't tell you, or? No, he didn't tell me. Okay. And uh, did Roy tell you what he did with the gun that he used to shoot the man uh, with the Trans Am? Yes, he said he buried it in a different location. Okay, on the same family property? Yeah. Okay. And um, do you know a Walter Sanders? No, I don't. Do you know a J.B. Martin? No. 
Um, did he? Uh, did Roy tell you whether or not uh, he knew the white man with the Trans Am before the day he shot him? No. Did he say whether or not he ever did business with him before? No. Uh, what did Roy tell you uh, he did with the Trans Am? Um, he, he said that the, the, the motor burnt up, so he called a tow truck. Did he say where he did this at? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not for sure. Okay. Um, did he tell you uh, where the car was left? No, but he said he had it towed, and he gave them a, a different name. He didn't give him his name when he called the tow truck. Okay. Um, do you remember uh, if Roy told you where he went after he shot the white man in the Trans Am? No, I don't know. Did Roy ever tell you about a motel? Yeah. What did he tell you about? He had a room, him and his girlfriend. Okay. Motel. And how does that motel relate to the story he told you about shooting the man in the Trans Am? I think that's where he went. You think that's where Roy yeah. Okay. Not for sure. You mean after the after, shooting? After he shot the guy. Okay. After uh, he, uh, after he, he, you said he told you that he uh, called for a tow and used a fake name, or an alias rather. Yeah. Um, did he tell you where he went after that? No, he didn't. Okay. Did you know Roy before you went to the Kent County Jail? No, I didn't. Have you seen Roy since you left the Kent County Jail in 1985? No, I haven't. Okay.
assault this case. And so you were in jail for assault? Felonious assault. Felonious assault, which basically assault with intent to do great bodily harm less than murder. Yes, sir. And then ultimately you got a sentence and got out of the Kent County Jail eventually. Yes. Now, you were in there, you told us in January of 85 is when you went in, interviewed with a detective in March of 1985. So from January to March, when did you first meet Roy Snow? I don't quite remember, but it was in that time. And from March on, when did you leave the Kent County Jail after you did this interview? Do you recall when you left there? After I got a plea bargain. And I left, I'm not for sure, I don't remember. Maybe May, maybe? Not for sure. Okay. Now, when you say you got a plea bargain, again, you were talking with Mr. Ralston here, and he said that you reached out to an officer there and said you wanted to help on this case. Yes, sir. Okay, let me finish. Then she said Mr. Snow told you about, and so that's when Detective Miller came to see you. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And when you said you wanted to help out your case, that means that you were going to give some information and you were then hoping that you were going to get help on your sentence. Is that fair to say? Yes, sir. And when you interviewed Detective Miller, did you have an attorney at the time? No, sir. You didn't have an attorney on your case? Does the name, let me see, Mr. Thomas, I believe, does that ring a bell with you? Lawyer that maybe helped you out on your case in Kent County? Yeah. I don't remember the attorney's name. Thomas Parker? I did have a plea bargain with a lawyer. Okay, you had a lawyer. Yeah. But he wasn't there when you talked to Detective Miller. No, he wasn't. And when you talked to Detective Miller, did you ask him that you could get some help on your case? Yeah. And what did he offer to help you with? Never did get back with me. I'm sorry, what? Never did get back with me. Did he get back with you, but he offered to help you on your case? He didn't say anything. He didn't say anything concerning that. Just said he was going to get back to you? Yeah, never did. And then he never did get back to you? No, he didn't. Do you recall him telling you he was going to tell your lawyer that you had talked with him? No, I don't remember that. That's one of the things I wanted to clarify with you, Mr. Gant. And, again, I'm not trying to be insulting to you, but I'm looking at a report here that is in April 23rd of 2016, the Department of Corrections in Tennessee. Do you remember talking to Detective Rios and Trooper Watson from the Michigan State Police about that time? Yeah. And in this report, it says that they asked you about the conversation, and you told them you didn't recall anything about your 1985 conversation. And then someone read it to you. Do you recall that? Yeah. And, actually, the report, and this is my question for you, is it 
says that you don't read very well, so they had to read this interview to you. Is that correct? Right. Do you remember that? Yeah. So I have a copy of the interview here, and it's March 4th, 1985, 2, uh, 2 p.m., Kent County Sheriff's Department. Did you ever see that and read it yourself? Yeah. Let me show it to you. Yeah. You recognize that? Yeah. Okay. And is that the one that Trooper Watson had with him and read to you uh, in April of 2016? That's the same one that I, that's the same information that I gave the officer back in 1985. Correct. But the report that I have from Trooper Watson is that uh, he asked Nolan, I asked Nolan Gann if he was able to read, which Nolan Gann stated he doesn't read very well. Subsequently, Trooper Watson read first the synopsis of the interview, which was from Detective Miller, and then read the interview to you. Uh, so do you recall Trooper Watson reading this to you? Yes, I do. Okay. In Tennessee in 2016? Yeah. And he read the whole thing to you that, that you believe? Word by word. Okay. Did he give you a copy to look at while he read it to you? Yeah. Okay, so you had a copy and he had a copy. Right. And he read it to you. See, I, I can read, but I read very slow. Slow. Okay, so you guys went over it together. Yeah. All right. And I understood because I remember the things that I was saying that I gave that information to that detective back in 1985. Understood. And, All right. and those things, and things that he had written down there, those are the same things that I told that detective. Understood. I know you said that. All right. We'll get to that. Now, when you were in jail in Kent County in 1985, you said you believed you were in cell four or cell five, and Mr. Snell was either in cell four or cell five. You guys were next door to one. We were next door to one another. Okay. You said there's a walkway uh, in front of the cells? There's one in front that the officers come through because the cell's on the other side. One side of the walkway? It's a walkway in the back of the cell. Okay. Was. On mm -hmm. our side. It's a walkway back there. Yeah. Like a catwalk. Yeah. The officers Got it. make their walk. And we can go to the back of the cell after we come from the day room. After we come from out there, we still can talk to one another. Okay. Because our cells are right next to each other. Gotcha. And we can talk between the bars. And we can hand each other things. All right, so that was bars that wasn't walls, wasn't concrete walls. It was bars. And when you were there on uh, January of 1985, uh, when did Mr. Snell come in? Do you recall the date? No, I don't. Do you recall how long you were there before he came in that cell by you? How long was I in there? Yeah. Um, I was in there probably about, probably about a month, month and a half, something like that. And then Mr. Snell comes into the cell beside you. He was there already. Okay, well, that's what I asked you. So when you got there, he was already there in the cell, and then you were put in the cell next to him? Were you there first, and then he came into the I'm not, I'm not for sure, but I know he was there. Okay. So you get there in January of 85 and you get put in a cell. Were you put in cell four or five at that time, or you moved? No, I was there. Okay, in the same cell the whole time? No, I was in another cell, and they moved me down there. I was in, uh, I was on another block. When you first get up there, they put you in a cell with about, mm, about 
89 people uh -huh. anymore, and they're going to tell you, transfer it to where you're going, where you're going to be selling at. Okay. And that's what they did. They put me down there. You were down there. Then you went up to this cell, and you stayed yeah. there till you left. Right. Until uh -huh. I took my plea bargain. And do you recall whether Mr. Sell was there when you got there, or did he come in after you've been there? Um, I don't remember that. Don't remember. Okay. Don't remember. Good. Tell me that. Don't make something up, all right? Okay. No, I'm not. Okay. Now, uh, you said that there was uh, recreation, and I think you said one side, your side went. So recreation was split between, what do you mean by sides? The other side was the higher side, higher numbers. Okay. And then when they come out, we be in. When we come out, they be in. Okay. So they might be number 30 to 50, and you guys were one to 30 or whatever. Yeah. So you guys all go to recreation together. You recall how many guys went out to recreation? I'm not for sure. What'd you do? Uh, well, you can just walk around, watch TV, or get on the telephone. Okay. Other than that, you're just in the cell and there isn't any of that kind of stuff to do? No. How long usually would uh, recreation be? Uh, about an hour. Okay. And did you have any other people you talked to besides Mr. Snell? Nah, um, I go across. I go across and talk to my brother because he was on the other side. Okay, so you were able to talk to your brother and the Mr. Snell. That was about it for you. you no, know, other guys that I spoke to, you know. Here and there, just yeah, talking. You know, yeah. And uh, was this five days a week, six days, seven days a week? How often do you get recreation? Every day. Every day. Yeah. Okay, just once a day though. Yeah. For about an hour. Yeah. All right. And when Mr. Snell uh, and you had this conversation, tell me, what would you say recreation? Were you in a big room like this? Were you outside, inside, you go up outside? Front, you go up to the front of the, um, from the cell, go up to the front, and that's where the TV was, the telephone was, and it had some tables. You can sit down and talk. Okay. Anything else? Play cards or games? You can play cards, games, whatever you choose to play. All right. And how many guys do you think usually in there? I don't know. Not for sure. Okay. More than 10? Not for sure. All right. And when you and Mr. Snow were in there, what did you usually do together? Um, we talk. You sit at a table and talk? Yeah, we sit walk at the table and talk. Talk. We walk and talk, sit at the table. You know, we um, share um, commissary, you know. And you, I think, told, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, you told Mr. Ralston that uh, before the officers came to see uh, Roy Snell, uh, he told you about uh, this incident. Is that correct? Yeah. And uh, you and he were in the rec yard or were you in the cell when uh, you talked about it? We talked outside um, on the rec. When we'd be on the rec, then we'd talk when we're in the cell and go back to back of the box and talk. And uh, when he talked with you about it, did you tell anybody else? No, I didn't. Didn't tell your brother? No, I didn't tell my brother anything. So you didn't tell anybody until you decided you were going to tell this officer that you had this information? Yeah, because I, see what it was, I took the case, me and my brother. My brother didn't get charged. I got charged with it because it's something that I did. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to get some help from me. I knew yeah. my brother wasn't going to prison. Sure, understood. I knew I was going to prison. All right. So I was trying to get some type of leads. 
That's when you talk to the officer. That's when I talk to the officer. Now, uh, you're now in uh, uh, Tennessee, correct? Correctional facility? Yeah. Uh, what's your uh, outdate there? Um, I got like two and a half, like three more years. Three more, okay. And uh, what are you in for there for? Uh, attempted murder and attempted robbery. Okay, so kind of the same thing as the second degree attempted murder, yeah. Same thing as, as uh, kind of like in Kent County, same type of thing. No. A little different? Yeah. And so you got, uh, you said some more time to go, so what was your original sentence, you remember? Yeah, um, 17 years. 17? And you've done what, 10 now? No, I've done um, about six and a half years, almost eight, almost seven years. Okay, so you're hoping to get on out of there sooner? Yeah, hopefully. Okay, when you up for parole? And, um, 23. So yeah, like you said, about another three years yeah. and you're up for parole. Yeah. All right? Yeah. And your first sentence, were you paroled or did you max out? Um, I'm going to check. How's that going? The first sentence in Michigan in 1985. Just curiosity. Whether it's relevant or not. Just uh, curious. All right. So I'm going to sustain the objection. I don't think it's relevant at this point. Okay. Thank you, Mr. President. Um, now, in your time in Tennessee, other than talking to it looks like Trooper Watson and uh, uh, Detective Rios here. Did any other officers come to see you? You, you, you saw uh, Detective Rios here. I don't know if you remember. Right. Detective Rios and Trooper Watson from the state police came in April 23rd of 2016. Any other officers come down to see you in Tennessee? No. Okay. And I think you've had prior contact with Mr. Ralston here, uh, August 13th of 2018. Yeah. You came and testified, it looks like, uh, in uh, Lansing here in Michigan. Yes, I did. And they bring you up from Tennessee for that? Yes, I did. And uh, Detective Rios, and there was another detective there at the time, Mr. Ralston asked you some questions, correct? Yes, sir. Now, my question for you is, uh, prior to your testimony today, have you uh, read or anybody read you your interview, go over your interview in 1985 with you before you came to testify here today? Yes, sir. When did that happen? Um, yesterday. Who did? Officer, officer right there. Uh, Detective Rios here? Detective Rios, yes. Okay. And did anybody go over, uh, and I'm not going to go through the whole transcript, but you testified in August 13th of 2018. Did anybody go over uh, that testimony with you? Yes, let sir. Me show it, let me show it to you so you recognize it. See if anybody, if I may. Yes, sir. Uh, network reporting. Did anybody go over that interview with you? Yes, they did. And I read that myself also. Okay, so they gave, again gave you a copy yeah. and you went over it while they read it with you. Yes, sir. Okay. Good. Any other time?
Yeah. That's what they were. Right? Yeah. And murder, murder doesn't get any higher, right? Doesn't. doesn't get any worse. Doesn't get any worse. So it's your sworn testimony today that this man, Mr. Snell, just out and out told you that he killed some guy, shot him, and stole him, and stole from him, and took his drugs and his, his money. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He didn't know you beforehand, correct? He didn't know me then. Didn't know you, you got, then. We got to know each other. Because I told him about my case. I was telling him about my, my situation. He was telling me about it. Mm -hmm. Then when the officers came up there to see him, you know, he told me what had happened. He said, uh, some lieutenant, somebody came up there to talk to him concerning this case. And um, he told me, I said, um, what's going on? He said, that's that shit I was telling you about. About, this, about the murder case. They came up there to talk to him. So this was the second time he told you about it was after the officer talked. We talked several times about it. Several times you talked about it. Yeah, we talked about it. How many times? I'm not for sure, but that's how I get all the information that I get because he told me about it. How will I know about it if I even tell him? And he knew why you were there, right? Yeah, he knew why I was there. And he knew, knew my brother right across from me also. And he knew you were going to prison? Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, did you have any idea about what, how much time you were looking at? Did he know that? Well, they told me I was facing 10 years. Okay, so then you told him you were facing 10 years. I didn't tell him that. I just told him I was facing some time. Okay. He knew I was going to prison. Okay. Knew you were going to prison. Knew what for, right? Yeah. It wasn't going to be 18 months. No. Right. So with all that in mind, you're telling us that he said to you, I shot and killed this guy, Rob. Very we were talking. We got to be friends. Yeah. Got to be friends? Well, yeah. how, how do you mean? What did you guys buy stuff? I told him about a lot of stuff. I told him about my case. I told him about, um, I was married, had a child on the way, and he knew I had family down there in Grand Rapids. He knew I wasn't from there. He knew I was from Chicago, Illinois. You know, we talked and stuff like that. Right. We you got should, to be friends. Yeah. Just talk generally. Right. Yeah, you know, just like, you know, you meet someone, then you get to know them, you get close to them, and that's how we got to one another. Now, let me ask you this. You were in cell four or five, and he was in cell four or five, with me, either way. Uh, was there a cell one, two, was there a cell three and a cell six? Yeah, yeah. So there was somebody in cell three and somebody in cell six? Yeah, I'm assuming it was, yeah. Well, you said it was just bars, or couldn't you see them? No, you can't see them. Okay, when you come out, you can see them. But when I'm in my cell, he in this cell, I can't see him. But we can go to the back of the cell, because there's bar, there's a walkway, a catwalk. Okay. But I also come through and check, look in your cell, you know. And then we can talk, we can hand each other stuff. Okay. Because our wall was this thin. It's right close to one another. All right, but, all right, so there's not bars across the cell between you and him. There's actually some kind of There's a wall. There's a wall. Right. Okay. All right, get it now. Now there's a wall. So when he was talking to you and telling you about this murder, you guys were down at the end where the opening was. Tomorrow when we come out? Yeah, where you coming out? We come out, man. We just be walking around. You know, you can walk around. But did he ever talk to you about it while you guys were in the cells? Yeah, we go to the back of the bars. Right, that's what I'm saying. You go to the back of the bars and yeah. you talk, you can hear one another. Yeah, we talk. You know, we not we didn't talk about just that. We talk about other stuff. I understand that, but no. you did talk about it then. Yeah, and also out out when we was out. And when you talked about it.
listening to other people. I didn't say whether you were listening to what they were saying, but could you hear that they were talking? If they were talking, I mean, most definitely I could. You would definitely know they were talking? Yeah. Right? Okay. So, you, let's say, were in four, he's in five, somebody's in three, and if somebody in three was talking to somebody in two, you could hear that they were talking? Yeah. Oh? Yeah. Or if you were in five, he was in four, and somebody was in six, and they were talking to somebody in seven, you could hear him talking? I can hear him. All right. Other than the officer, uh, Detective Miller, uh, Detective Rios, Detective Watson, and when you talk to Mr. Snell, did you tell anybody else about this? No, I did. Nobody else? I told the officer, I told the officer that was um, uh, working at the jail to get a, get someone I can talk to from the police station because I had some information to tell him. Okay. And I didn't tell my brother, I didn't tell no one. Okay. Know. And the brother that I'm referring about, he passed this, you know, he didn't pass, though. questions that you uh, 
have the same uh, concerns I have about some of the uh, evidentiary issues here, and I'll leave it to your analysis as to whether this case uh, should be found over for further proceedings. Uh, you obviously know uh, my feelings and Mr. Snell's feelings uh, about that, and so I'll leave it to the sound discretion of the court. Thank you, Mr. Prysock. I don't have anything else to add, obviously, except one point. And, it, and it's based on the question that the court asked of uh, Dr., or not Dr., but uh, Ms., um, uh, Katie Meredith. Um, and the, uh, and I'm, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to link the evidence that was taken by Dick Miller, which was item 25. Uh, that was eventually what wound up as the slide and wound up being positive, not positive, but uh, the, the donor of that, uh, the, that um, congealed uh, evidence. Uh, it, it, was, uh, uh, it was Ricky Atwood, and, and that's what turned out to be liver cells. And I, I just wanted to make sure that that, that link was clear to the court. And, then, and being bifurcated the two dates that we've been here, just, uh, if the court had any questions about that, I'm more than willing to entertain them. I appreciate that. I, you, I, I did get that connection. Thank you. Thank you, Judge. Uh, so obviously I've taken lots of notes. There's lots of exhibits. Um, I want to take a few minutes to go over those. Uh, so I'll take a short recess and then we'll come back on the record and I'll give you my ruling. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Judge. In the end, Nolan Gant had information that only the killer would have known, including how the murder went down, putting the white male in the trunk of his own vehicle, and how Roy Snell had called the tow truck and used an assumed name and stayed in that motel with a female the night that Rick Atwood went missing. Now, before we get to the judge's ruling, I want to read from the final page of the affidavit complaint, because it summarizes some of the state's theory of the case. Roy Snow was interviewed by Detective Sergeant Miller and acknowledged that he was in the car with Walter Sanders and Richard Atwood. Cigarette butts from Atwood's vehicle were recovered. These cigarette butts were sent to the Michigan State Police Lab, and the DNA results returned identified Roy Snell. I want to interject myself that there were at least six of them, certainly not an amount that you would expect for a quick pot buy in a vehicle, more like someone who had been in that vehicle for a long period of time, let's say a trip from Nuego County to Grand Rapids. Roy Snell was the last person known to be with Rick Atwood. Roy Snell asked Walter Sanders if he wanted to rob Rick Atwood and displayed a handgun. Roy Snell told J.B. Martin he killed Rick Atwood. Roy Snell told Nolan Gant about killing a guy and putting him in the trunk, which is consistent to the blood, DNA evidence, and is consistent with Roy Snell's statement to Nolan Gant. Now comes the moment of truth, whether the judge will bind the case over for trial. She gives a very good summary of all the bullet points made by the prosecution throughout the hearings, including the ones from the witnesses on day one that I missed. Let me formally introduce you to the Honorable Melissa Dykeman. She's a lifelong resident of Nuego County, was elected to the probate court and began her term on January 1, 2019, and prior to that, she practiced as a private attorney with Greer and Dykeman for more than 18 years. As the uh, attorneys know, the question for the court today is whether there's probable cause to believe a crime's been committed and that, the, and that this defendant committed the crime. <clears throat> Um, basically, does this evidence present enough evidence that a person of ordinary prudence and caution uh, would be of the reasonable belief that the accused is guilty? It's not a finding of guilt or innocence. It's just a probable cause hearing. 
The court heard from multiple witnesses, uh, and there were numerous exhibits admitted. In this case, uh, the court heard from Karen Atwood. She is the mother of Richard, or Rick Atwood, as everyone has referred to him. He's the named victim in this matter, and she testified that Rick was her oldest son, and uh, in 1983, August of 1983, he was living with his girlfriend here in Nuevo County. She testified that he drove a, grand, uh, a Trans Am and took great pride in it, as most of the witnesses testified uh, to the same. <clears throat> she indicated in August of 1983, Debbie called her to tell her that Rick was missing and had been gone for a few days. They never heard from him again, and this was completely out of the ordinary for him. She further testified that she thought or knew he was selling marijuana and she did not approve of that. She testified that on more than one occasion she had seen him with large sums of money. We also heard from Deborah Kane, uh, who was Rick Atwood's girlfriend at the time uh, of his disappearance and lived with him in August of 1983. She testified that on the day he disappeared, August 10, 1983, they were at their home uh, that they shared in Croton. Uh, it was her intention to go shopping that day, and he was going to go cut wood and then go to Grand Rapids to pay someone some money. She also confirmed that he drove a Trans Am and that he loved that car, never let anyone drive it. I think she said she drove it maybe once. <clears throat> she testified when she left the house, Rick was still there, but later that day before she went shopping, she did see him in White Cloud at the gas station in the Trans Am uh, getting gas. She returned to their home later that afternoon. Rick was not home. There was a large ashtray full of cigarettes and marijuana roaches. She testified that Rick did not smoke cigarettes. He did smoke marijuana. Uh, and that when she returned home, the Trans Am was gone uh, and just their truck was there. She also testified that she knew uh, Rick Atwood sold marijuana. Most of the time she was not present for those dealings. And she believed that on that date and time, he was going to Grand Rapids to pay the guy that he got marijuana from. She testified that she had occasionally done this uh, with him in the past. Uh, she also testified that he carried large amounts of money with him and would pull it out in front of anyone to pay for things and or make change. She testified that on August 10, 1983, Rick never came home and this was unusual because he had only done that one other time in the past without calling. Uh, after a few days, she called Rick's mom who told her to clean out the room uh, where the marijuana was kept because she was going to call the police. Uh, Ms. Kane testified that at that time there was no money uh, in the safe. <clears throat> she also testified that when she saw the Trans Am when it was recovered, she was shocked at its condition because this was uh, Rick's baby and he never would have left it in that condition and it was full of cigarette butts and Rick again did not smoke. We also heard from Mr. Sanders uh, who knew both Rick Atwood and Roy Snell. Mr. Sanders' testimony uh, was somewhat <clears throat> um, contradictory. Uh, of course, this happened a long time ago, and he didn't know exactly what day it was that he saw Rick Atwood. He wasn't even sure uh, of the month. Um, he did recall that he was in the vehicle with Mr. Atwood, uh, that he was on his way to the mill pond or at the mill pond when he saw Mr. Atwood and wanted to buy marijuana from him. Uh, Mr. Atwood said that was fine. They got in the vehicle and drove around. Later, uh, at some point, they saw Roy Snell and that uh, he knew Roy Snell. And Roy Snell also got in the vehicle, presumably to buy marijuana from Mr. Atwood. The three of them drove around. Mr. Sanders could not remember where. Uh, when questioned,
questioned uh, about some inconsistencies. He, he couldn't recall if they had been at the flowing wells or uh, where they had gone. He did testify at some point, Mr. Atwood got out of the vehicle to use a payphone, and Mr. Snell and Mr. Sanders were left alone in the car. At this point, Mr. Sanders testified that Mr. Snell asked Mr. Sanders if he wanted to rob Rick Atwood, and he pulled out uh, a revolver or a semi-automatic handgun uh, and showed it to Mr. Sanders, Mr. Snell did. <clears throat> this was not the first time uh, Mr. Sanders had seen Mr. Snell with a handgun. Before the disappearance, uh, he had seen Mr. Snell at a football game with a gun. Uh, he testified that when Mr. Atwood got back in the vehicle, he told Mr. Sanders, I have something I have to take care of, so I have to drop you off. When the court questioned Mr. Sanders as to whether or not he told Mr. Snell the same thing, uh, Mr. Sanders said he did not hear Mr. Atwood say the same thing to Mr. Snell. He testified that Mr. Atwood dropped him off. Again, he was unclear as to where that uh, exact location was, but he said the last time, and for the benefit of the record, both locations were located on Main Street or Wilcox here uh, in White Cloud. He testified that the last time he saw the Trans Am, it was turning south on M37, and the last time he saw it, Mr. Snell and Mr. Atwood were both in it. Uh, we also heard from Walter Filos Jr., who testified that he was friends with both Rick Atwood, he was basically friends with Rick Atwood and uh, that they would use marijuana and hunt together. He knew Roy Snell uh, from living in the same uh, town together and he testified on the day of Rick Atwood's disappearance, he saw Rick Atwood in his Trans Am in the city of White Cloud. He flagged him over, they met up to talk and when he met them to talk, he saw in Mr. Atwood's car, Roy Snell in the front seat and Walter Sanders in the back seat. Uh, he testified that Mr. Atwood told him he had to take care of some business and then he would meet up with Mr. Filos afterwards. Mr. Filos said he waited about 15 to 20 minutes for Mr. Atwood to return. When he didn't drive, uh, when he didn't return, he drove through town, didn't see him and figured something came up, so he went home. He testified that he never saw or heard from Rick Atwood again. We also heard from J.B. Martin III. Mr. Martin testified that he met Mr. Snell uh, when they were young, 12 or 13, that they spent a lot of their summers together on an 800-acre parcel that he referred to as Paradise uh, with the Snells. Uh, and the Snells either owned it or were caretakers for that parcel. He indicated Roy Snell and he did marijuana together. He knew Ricky Atwood, but they were never all together, meaning Ricky and uh, Roy and Mr. J.B. Martin were not together at the same time that J.B. remembered. He acknowledged that when he was interviewed by Dick Miller in 1984, uh, he didn't, uh, wasn't completely honest and didn't tell him much. He indicated in his second interview with Dick Miller, however, uh, he told him more as he had received a threat from Roy Snell in his parents' driveway. This was two months after his first talk with Dick Miller. Uh, he indicated that Roy Snell threatened him, told him essentially keep your mouth shut, you're a smart guy, you can put two and two together, I did it. Uh, he admitted, he told the detective that Mr. Snell said, I've heard people have been running their mouths, if that keeps happening they will find themselves just like Ricky with their heads chopped off in a bag somewhere. After that threat, Mr. Snell uh, asked, after the threat in the driveway, Mr. Snell had asked Mr. Martin to go cut wood with him. This was a man uh, who claims to have been very good friends with Mr. Snell. Mr. Martin was so scared from the threat, he did not go to cut wood. 
It was after this threat that Mr. Martin contacted Dick Miller uh, and made the statements uh, regarding the threat. <clears throat> he also uh, testified that he knew Mr. Atwood sold marijuana. Uh, and important for this court, uh, he testified that Mr. Snell had previously told him that people who sell drugs are good people to rob because cops won't investigate and they won't go to the police. When questioned about his inconsistencies over the year, he was uh, honest and said that he uh, didn't want to get involved at first and uh, did not make uh, complete statements to the police when first interviewed. We heard from Detective Miller, who was essentially the first one assigned to the case. This case was uh, reported to the county uh, sheriff's department, but uh, later Michigan State Police took over the investigation. Uh, Detective Miller indicated one of the first things he did was file a missing persons and missing vehicle report through lien, uh, and he was notified a short time later by Kent County that that vehicle, the Trans Am, had been located in Kent County, uh, and that it was towed by a tow truck company under the name of Michael Roberts. When he went to see the vehicle uh, and had it removed for processing, he indicated that there appeared to be bloodstains on the seat, uh, that the intake hood had been removed and placed in the trunk, and that the car had cigarette butts, uh, I think he said beer, uh, and essentially was dirty and there was a lot of trash in the vehicle. When speaking to the tow truck drivers, it became apparent that it was towed from the Gateway Motel on 28th Street, and when Detective Miller went there inquiring of a robber, uh, Mike Roberts Jr., who had requested the tow, uh, he was shown records from the motel indicating uh, that in fact someone uh, using the name uh, Michael Roberts had registered to stay there uh, and registered a Trans Am as their vehicle. In addition, there were two long distance phone calls that were made from that room. The court thinks this is also key evidence in this case. Those phone calls were made to Charles Brown and Roy Snell Sr. Uh, after inquiring, it became clear to the detectives that obviously Roy Snell Sr. is Roy Snell Jr.'s father, uh, and Charles Brown is, I think I got this right, Charles Brown is, uh, Mr. was at the time Mr. Snell's girlfriend, Mr. Snell's uh, girlfriend's mother's Mr. <laughs> Charles Brown's girlfriend was Mr. Snell's girlfriend's mother. There we go. <clears throat> um, I, uh, the court also found it uh, interesting that Detective Miller testified, uh, and he had a number of years' experience even at that time, that he only ever had one suspect in this case, and that was Mr. Roy Snell. He also testified that when he went to the Kent County Jail sometime later to get a... Uh, handwriting sample from Mr. Snell, it was apparent to him that Mr. Snell was attempting to uh, disguise his writing as it took him two hours to give the handwriting sample. In addition, Mr. Snell made uh, a remark that someone should tell J.B. Martin to shut his mouth after reviewing the search warrant. We also heard from Mr. Moore, uh, Glenn Moore, who was a retired uh, MSP uh, lab, uh, crime lab worker. He indicated that when he processed the vehicle, he was one of the first ones to process the vehicle. It was dirty and dusty, and there were um, red and brown stains in the vehicle that he believed to be uh, blood. Uh, he took samples of all of those uh, 
red stains. Those stains were tested. They did come back positive for blood. At that time, DNA testing uh, was not uh, available or wasn't at least being used here. Uh, it was determined at that time even that that blood type found in the vehicle was type A. Uh, and he testified that we did not know Rick Atwood's blood type, but that based on his parents' blood type, he could have been a type A. He, test he testified based on his experience, this blood uh, in the vehicle uh, would have been caused from a significant injury. He testified there was a large amount of blood, although he wavered on what large meant or the definition of large. He testified that he believed the blood flowed from the driver's seat to the back of the vehicle and pooled on the, black on the back of the floorboard. This is consistent with uh, the story that Mr. Gant told uh, of the confession from Mr. Snell. We heard from Detective Rios, who again confirmed um, that the uh, telephone numbers used from that hotel room were for Charles Brown and Roy Snell Sr., uh, both of which obviously are connected to Roy Snell Jr. He also indicated that upon serving a search warrant uh, to uh, the defendant, um, the defendant did not want to give a statement, but did indicate that he did not know Ricky Atwood, had never been with Ricky Atwood, and that his DNA would not be in the car. Uh, he also went a second time, and Mr. Snell, the defendant, indicated the same thing. He did not know Ricky Atwood, never knew, uh, never been in that car, and that his DNA would not be in the car. Obviously, this is inconsistent with what we heard from the uh, forensic scientist uh, later. <coughs> Detective Rios uh, established uh, that um, Mr. Atwood had been legally uh, determined to be uh, deceased uh, pursuant to an order by the probate court, which was entered as Exhibit 31. And uh, thereafter, an official death certificate was issued, which was Exhibit 32. Uh, we heard from Catherine Meredith, who was uh, qualified as an expert in forensic biology. Uh, she's a forensic scientist in Grand Rapids and had an opportunity to also work on this case. She went through uh, significantly her uh, procedures in testing these types of cases, these types of uh, DNA. Uh, and also the levels that the lab goes to ensure their accuracy. Um, the court found it interesting that um, although uh, they could not get DNA from Mr. Atwood, uh, Richard Atwood, they were able to uh, almost work backwards through uh, DNA and paternity tests from his parents and his siblings. Um, the court heard multiple pieces of evidence in that vehicle testing positive for DNA that matched uh, Mr. Atwood. Uh, there were two different spots on the air scoop that were um, determined to be a match, at least to the Richard Atwood alternative sample. The court is aware that this is not uh, a sample directly from Mr. Atwood, but when you look at the statistics of probability, <laughs> when you're talking billions, trillions, quadrillions, most of these um, lab results uh, were statistically uh, great uh, to show that this was likely from Richard Atwood. Uh, in addition, there were I think, three blood stains that tested positive uh, for or matched the DNA profile, alternative profile of Richard Atwood. 
and others uh, were excluded from that profile. Again, these samples were uh, based on probability, most of them in the quintillion, sextillion uh, numbers, <coughs> indicating great probability that they were, in fact, Richard Atwood uh, DNA samples. <coughs> Lastly, and uh, almost more importantly for uh, the evidence today, there were multi multiple cigarette butts taken from the vehicle. Uh, I know that today, at least, we heard uh, about six, I think we heard about seven. One had uh, an unknown male contributor, uh, but the other six cigarette butts matched the profile from Roy Snell. Uh, two of those did have a minor donor, meaning someone else's DNA was also found on that cigarette. But Mr. Snell's cigarette, uh, Mr. Snell's DNA was found on all those cigarette butts, on six of those cigarette butts, which was inconsistent with what he told uh, Detective Rios on not one occasion, but two different occasions, uh, that he would not be in the car, that he would never been in the car, and that no DNA would be found when, in fact, it was. Lastly, the DNA sample uh, from the um, spray can or spray bottle uh, in the back of the vehicle was very significant and uh, for Detective Miller, uh, one of the best pieces of evidence he took from that car. That uh, spray bottle indicated um, that it was uh, tissue and liver, or that it was tissue, uh, that it was lung, and liver tissue. Uh, it is true that Dr. Grazier also indicated lung and liver tissue. Both doctors could not determine um, if it was animal or human. However, the blood that was taken from that same bottle uh, did match the DNA profile for uh, Mr. Ricky Allen. <clears throat> Or Dr. Cole indicated that in order for uh, liver tissue to be outside the body, uh, in the, as it was in this case found in the trunk, uh, there would have to be a significant penetrating injury to the abdomen that would uh, penetrate the liver. This type of injury would likely cause uh, the need for medical attention and could be fatal. Uh, this is pretty consistent with what we heard from uh, the lab technician as well about the amount of blood. Lastly, we heard from Noel Gant, uh, a prisoner uh, here uh, in, or he was a prisoner here in Kent County the same time as Roy Snell back in uh, 1985. He testified that uh, he would talk to Mr. Snell during rec time and also through the bars uh, in the cell and that at some point Mr. Snell indicated that he had killed uh, a white guy, shot him while the guy was in his vehicle. He described um, that Mr. Snell had told him that the vehicle was a Trans Am, that uh, he shot the white guy while the white guy was in the driver's seat and Mr. Snell was in the passenger seat. This is consistent with the findings uh, in the car uh, regarding where the blood was found and where the blood pooled. <clears throat> he indicated to Mr. Gant that he had shot him five or six times. Uh, he also told him that he then moved the body to the trunk of the car. 
uh, and later buried the body on the family property and also buried the gun at a different location on the family property. <clears throat> he testified that Mr. Snell also indicated that he was staying at a hotel in Grand Rapids with his girlfriend. All of the testimony from Mr. Gant is consistent with the other evidence that the investigators gathered during this time. Uh, it's a puzzle, and when you put all the pieces together, it's clear to this court that probable cause has been met. <clears throat> I should note, Mr. Gant also indicated uh, another significant fact in that Mr. Snell told him that he had the, tow he had the Trans Am towed, uh, which is a pretty significant fact uh, that uh, this court doesn't believe could be made up. Uh, you would have to have that information uh, from someone who knew about the case or was involved in the murder. <clears throat> he also indicated that when he had the vehicle towed, he had used a different uh, name. He was honest with the fact that he was working uh, with the police to try to get a deal in his case. Uh, what the court found interesting, too, is that uh, when they were uh, in the Kent County Jail together, Mr. Gant referred to them as friends. They had begun, become friendly. They had shared commissary, uh, and he also admitted that he had confided in Mr. Uh, Snell about his case, told him specifics about his case. court believes there is probable cause to believe that the counts one and count two have been committed for the benefit of the record. Uh, venue has been established through the order designated venue uh, for prosecution filed by the uh, Attorney General's office and filed with the court today. Uh, venue is established here in Nuego County. The court is convinced that probable cause has been met to uh, bind the defendant over on count one and count two. So now we're on to a trial. The Atwoods are finally headed toward justice for their boy. I always worry for families at the trial stage. It requires so much of them. Being forced to relive it all and listen to the gruesome details on their journey for that final justice. And you haven't heard all the evidence yet. I know that because I read the police report. There's more. There's a lot more. I will post updates on the Down and Away Facebook page and here if there is audio to support that. Although I'm not sure... If, by the time this goes to trial, I will even have the benefit of live-streamed court proceedings, I sure wish that was the standard operating procedure because it makes it a lot easier for people like me who are not living in the area to follow those stories. Thank you so much for listening. Barring any more case updates, it'll be a little bit before you hear from me again. The case I am currently researching is a doozy. Multiple murders. Multiple missing people multiple jurisdictions and states. It's a saga of family dysfunction, greed, and control, the likes of which I've not yet encountered in my days as a podcaster and researcher of true crime. It's an interesting case. I'm speaking to some interesting people, and I look forward to sharing that case with you. And I always hate to ask, but if you guys have a minute, I would love it if you would go to iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and give us a review because it does help elevate the podcast for other listeners so that they can discover it too. Please stay safe out there. Listen to one another. And if you have a minute today, say a prayer if that's the thing you do, or send some positive vibes, or do whatever mojo it is you do when you want to send something positive out into the world to the family and friends of George Floyd. 
I'm sure that they could use it. Thanks again. You'll hear me next season. Bye-bye. You know what I'm saying But I don't know it at all You know where I'm staying Cause I don't know it at all You know I think I'm bound to fall You think that I'm some strong man But I know it ain't so I still have much to learn Oh, I know Try and cry my pain